Good afternoon, friends. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Junior, for leading us as always. You've been doing a lot of heavy lifting in recent weeks. We so appreciate your leadership. Thanks to Kwame for your prayer, to Ling and Caroline and Dominic for hosting us, and of course to our dancers for leading us in the motion song. We're so thankful to all of you for your contributions. And also, I just want to say a brief hello and welcome to anyone who may be joining us for the first time or you're new, just checking things out. I can imagine that looking for a church congregation uh, or even trying to figure out what new churches are like <laughs> during a pandemic can be a really daunting task. So. If there's anything that we can do to help serve you, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Regardless, we hope that the fullness of who you are feels completely welcomed in our midst. We are very glad that you are here. Today, we're going to finish a series entitled Hope in the Dark. And I'd like to start by reading a few texts and do a brief survey of the theme of darkness that is found throughout our scriptures and ask, how is the word and theme of darkness used in the biblical narrative? And by going back to the original story and revisiting the role and presence of themes like darkness, we will hopefully gain some perspective and inspiration for how we live our faith in today's world. And we will highlight once again, the brilliance of Jesus within that context. And believe it or not, we don't have to go very far. If we read the very opening verses of the Bible, right there, central to the most foundational story in the text, is darkness. Let's read Genesis 1, verse 1. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness over the face of the deep, and God's Spirit hovered over the face of the waters, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. These opening lines are incredibly beautiful, but they're also poetic and literarily intricate. This text is layered with multiple strands of meaning, various connections, and rich symbolism, so much so that you could spend a lifetime delving the depths and possibilities of this Genesis creation story, and indeed many have. The person who wove the tapestry of these words together knew exactly what they were doing. They were encoding in the very language and syntax and structure of these lines meaning and clues to the grander story that the author was attempting to communicate through this text. For example, we've noted before in previous messages that the opening line in this passage in the original Hebrew is seven words, and the next two verses are 14 words, making the entire opening paragraph a structure that is divisible by seven. Even the number of characters, the number of letters that compose the first several lines are divisible by seven. That pattern is going to be carried out over the course of the seven days of creation and the seven times God declares it is good. The number seven plays a huge part in the literary structure of this passage. And then of course becomes a tremendous theme throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, in addition to the number seven, 
other literary patterns are found throughout Genesis 1 that convey some kind of significance and meaning, like the number 10, for example. This is actually the number of times that God speaks in Genesis, and it actually corresponds with why we have 10 commandments, or more specifically, when we read carefully, the 10 words that God speaks on Mount Sinai to Moses. That number 10 is intentional as a literary design pattern hearkening back to the Genesis creation narrative to say that what was happening at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Torah, the teachings of God, should be seen and understood as God creating yet again new life and new order out of chaos. This time through the people of Israel and the teachings and the wisdom found in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Now, this is just one example of numerous times that our ancestors paid close attention to those intricate features of the story and wove them in to their historical narratives, the stories that they told about their encounters with God and the faith that they passed on to their children. Now, these are incredible studies that we could pursue for a long time, but for today, our focus is on the theme of darkness and the role that it plays in this opening narrative. Understanding how the authors are using literary design patterns with this motif will help us understand the meaning of darkness and its place within our story. So I'd like to point out one other literary device that the text employs, which are couplets. So we've mentioned sevens and tens, and now we're going to focus in on couplets, which is the pairing, the comparing, pairing, comparing, and contrasting of two things. The first couplet in the text is quite easy to spot. Heavens and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase not only shows up in the first line of this text, but also in the last line of this section. And in chapter 2, the order of the words reverses, which indicates some sort of shift in perspective, which makes Genesis 2 slightly distinct from Genesis 1. Again, that's another rabbit trail for another time. For now, I just want you to notice that the coupling happens very early on and will continue to happen throughout the biblical text. For darkness, the first couplet that darkness has is with the deep. In Hebrew, tehom. Read a bit more carefully, you can see it if we break it up. Three lines. The earth was formless and empty. There's another pairing. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. There's that pairing. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, coupling the Spirit and the waters. The final couplet in a list of three in a row. Now, again, these writers were brilliant, and this text is really fantastic. I hope you're starting to appreciate the literary rhythm and pattern of this text. What's fascinating about this couplet of the darkness and the deep is that the word to home, the word deep, doesn't have a definite article. It doesn't have the word the, as in the deep. The passage quite literally reads, and darkness over deep. 
If you are fond of marking your English version of the Bible, you would be fully justified in crossing out the word the in Genesis 1 verse 2 in front of the word deep. The other elements such as heavens and earth and even water do have the word the, the definite article in front of them, which indicates a particular object, something about this physical world that the word is trying to describe or qualify in the text. But the word to home, the word deep does not. Hang with me. <laughs> Why am I sharing all of this? Is this really a big deal? Well, I think it might be, and here's why. The absence of the definite article, the, has suggested to some interpreters that the word to home may not be an abstract description of a thing, but a name, a proper name of an ancient deity or some sort of mythological creature. Translated into Greek, the word to home becomes the abyss. What does all that mean? If we take the understanding of the literary structure and these definitions, the idea of darkness coupled with the word deep or abyss signifies that there is a shared meaning between the theme and motif of darkness and the character of the creature, the God, to home, the abyss. And what is that shared meaning? Tahom, abyss, signifies utter and complete chaos, the absence of any light, creation, order, and by extension, because this creation story is one of love, darkness takes on the meaning of the absence of love, absence of care, absence of compassion, justice, and mercy. Darkness in this story is connected with the personification of anti-creation. Darkness is the opposite of creation. Darkness is the opposite of creativity. Darkness is the antithesis of goodness. Darkness is the inverse of order. Darkness in this Genesis story is equal to whatever is bad, evil, wrong, corrupt, degenerate, unholy, and whatever other synonym you would like to use because God's good creation that is coming in the next verses is good, right, just, imaginative, holy, and beautiful, the opposite of darkness. And this rich meaning is why darkness is contrasted with the word light in Genesis, another coupling. Because light, as the opposite of darkness, is the presence of creation and creativity of harmony between humanity and God, cooperation between humans, and care between humanity and the natural creation. Light in this story symbolizes hope and order, proper functioning, meaning and purpose and belonging. Light is the essence of the creation story, which is why our story begins with the creation of light. And footnote, fast forward all the way to the end of Revelation, the last book in our story. And our story ends with the light of God. God, in the end, is a kind of light that casts no darkness. Brilliant. 
can we take this one step further? In verse 5 of Genesis chapter 1, God calls the light day and the darkness night. And for the rest of the creation story, there is bubbling creative activity by God during the day, day one, day two, day three, etc. And the absence of any creative activity during the darkness between the evening and the morning. Let's say that again. The meaning that light and the day have is equated with creative activity. God working to put the world in order, to establish the proper relationships between humanity and the world, to give meaning and purpose to all of the created elements, the sun, moon, stars, planets, land, seas, creatures, and yes, to humanity. The meaning that darkness and night have is the complete absence of that creative activity. Darkness is chaos. Now, I hope you're still with me. This is really important. The coupling of the meaning of darkness with the deep and the abyss and the coupling and contrasting of light and darkness cannot be overstated as it will be used again and again as a predominant metaphor, theme, and motif throughout our biblical story. Here's just a few examples. For those of you who remember the Exodus story, there are 10 plagues, notice that number 10 again, that are heaped upon Pharaoh and Egypt as a judgment against Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. And what is plague number nine? The one right before the death of the firstborn. It's the plague of darkness. Exodus 10, 21 through 23 reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was dense darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another, and for three days they could not move from where they were. But all the Israelites had light where they lived. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, just think about that for a second. We're all familiar with power outages, but generally speaking, they don't last very long, and we usually have some sort of modern accoutrements that make the time a bit more bearable. Consider what this passage is saying. Living in darkness that could be felt. A dense darkness in which you cannot see the person standing in front of you. The suggestion in this passage is that not even the moon or the stars illuminated the, the Egyptians during this time. And here's another brilliant literary twist. This is a kind of darkness that keeps you from moving around whatsoever. Darkness in this passage becomes representative of the stubborn arrogance and pride of Pharaoh, a kind of attitude and hubris that keeps him from moving his mind or perspective whatsoever. Darkness, here again, represents chaos, the kind of chaos that wreaks havoc on the land and on the people. God was recreating his creation through the people of Israel, symbolized by the ten words in the light at Mount Sinai. Pharaoh 
was attempting to destroy God's creation, illustrated by the ten plagues and the darkness in Egypt. Let's go on. The incredibly brilliant story of Job, the righteous man of God, who comes under the attack of the Satan, references darkness as one of the predominant descriptors of the chaos that is being unleashed upon him and his family. He even writes of the day of his birth. Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. In other words, a moment that was supposed to be full of light, of joy, of the wonder of God's creation through birth, Job says, should be considered darkness. A cursed day, an evil day, a day of gloom and despair. The psalmists continue this theme of darkness, being a descriptor of chaos. Psalm 107.10 reads, Some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. The Proverbs speak of people who forsake the paths of the uprightness to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Again, the words and teachings of God were supposed to bring light and creation to the world, but these passages speak to people who spurn and forsake these teachings, and they are described with the image of darkness. The prophets are also going to use darkness to describe the opposite of obedience to God and the consequences that come under such actions. And one sect in Judaism in the first century used this theme in the phrases sons of light to describe the true Israel, those who were faithful to God, and the phrase sons of darkness to describe the opposite, those who were disobedient, those who were the false Israel. That sectarian group was called the Essenes, who were the scribes and caretakers, as best we understand, of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, the most ancient copies of biblical texts we have in the world. Light and darkness was such a predominant theme in their writings, taken from these biblical passages, that the museum, the physical architecture that houses the Dead Sea Scrolls, was built with a jar top to look like light and a dark wall opposite to symbolize the darkness. And of course, darkness is in our culture to this day to describe evil in opposition to light, which describes good. If you only knew the power of the dark side. What I hope this survey has done for you is expand your understanding of darkness from a biblical perspective to not just mean hard or difficult bad times. Darkness throughout these passages and more is the opposite of God's creative order. It is the opposite of the meaning and purpose of God's intent. It is the opposite of God's activity of making the world right the way God intended the world to be. This, all of it, 
is rooted in the Genesis coupling of darkness and the abyss. Conclusion, nothing good happens in the darkness. Or does it? The word darkness is hardly used in the New Testament passages, but the one author who uses it frequently is the writer of the gospel according to John. Now this makes sense because the gospel according to John begins with a literary structure that sounds vaguely familiar. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Listening to that, this is absolutely a retelling of the Genesis creation story, but now focused on the person of Jesus. There is a lot to say here, but for now, we will simply observe that whatever we thought of God in the Genesis creation story, the author of the gospel according to John is asking us to consider that to be central to the identity and ministry of the person of Jesus. So, if God creates order out of chaos in Genesis, Jesus is creating order out of chaos through his ministry. If God is bringing life through words, Jesus is bringing life as the word. The creative work of God in Genesis and the life ministry and teachings of Jesus are both restoring right relationships, establishing wholeness and purpose, and breathing new life into all things. And of course, doing so in and through love. In poetic terms, let there be light. And so when the writer of the gospel, according to John, uses light and dark, those terms are used intentionally to capture the full breadth of meaning as written down in these sacred texts all the way back to the beginning. And so it is no accident that the last time the word dark is used in the gospel according to John is at the resurrection in a subtle, but I think profound plot twist of the story. In chapter 20 of John, verse one, we read, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. While it was still dark, why does the author put that phrase in there? Is that really necessary? Or could it be that that phrase is there to describe the radical, redemptive transformation that is happening at the resurrection? Real quick, remember those sevens we talked about at the beginning? You know, the number that is woven throughout the creation story that describes wholeness and completion? Well. The author of John also uses that seven frequently. And one of those sevens is the number of signs that are found in the gospel account. Number one, Jesus changes water to wine. Number two, Jesus heals a royal official son. Number three, Jesus heals a paralytic at the pool. Number four, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Number five, Jesus walks on water. Number six, Jesus heals a man born blind. Number seven, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
seven signs that reverberate the creation story and the creation design pattern. The fullness of the completion of the creation of Genesis is found and fulfilled in Jesus. So this author is writing, except there's not seven signs. There's an eighth sign. You want to guess what it is? The sign that we just talked about. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It appears as if what the author of the Gospel of John is doing is declaring that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the same resurrection that declares death and destruction to be utter failures, the same resurrection that exposes the evil of the world, that resurrection is the beginning of a whole new creation, a brand new day one. And unlike the Genesis story, in which nothing creative happens in the dark, the author of John goes out of the way to declare that the resurrection happened while it was still dark. This new, brilliant creation found in Jesus brings new life and new creation out of the dark, out of the very thing that is the opposite of God's good creation, out of the very evil that destroys God's creative activity. Out of that, Jesus rises and brings redemptive creative activity even while it is still dark. And this, brilliantly, is a fulfillment of the opening passage of John that the darkness, even the darkness, could not overcome the light. My dear friends, hope in the dark means that while our ancestors despaired at the darkness, we recognize that in Jesus, and specifically in the resurrection of Jesus, is the dawning of a brand new day one, the dawning of a whole new creation, the bringing a whole new order out of chaos while it is still dark. As we turn to a new year and we begin to consider what a new revolution around the sun may bring to us and our lives, I would like us to not forget that there will always be evening and morning and darkness in between. And I'm really sorry that that is the truth of this broken and fallen world. We, uh, we fool ourselves in thinking that being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus is the promise of only light, only good things, only flourishing. Darkness continued to be a theme throughout our biblical text. And darkness will continue to be a theme throughout our lives today. But followers of Jesus know this one thing, that while we may perceive nothing in the dark, indeed we cannot even see anything good or creative or beautiful in the dark, in Jesus there is a resurrection that happens only in the dark. There is a new kind of life that can only come in and through the dark. There is a redemption and a salvation that is brooding and incubating and happening 
while it is still dark. And that, my friends, is the hope in the dark. God's creative activity, God's speaking beauty and life into this world in the previous chapters of our story happened only in and through the light. In Jesus, they also happen in the dark. I am blown away that the twists and turns of our story include the fact that the most important event in history, the resurrection of Jesus, happened while it was still dark. For followers of Jesus, darkness is not just the enemy, but in and through Jesus, darkness can now be seen as housing the potential for new life, a resurrection up out of the dead. Wherever you may happen to be, in the darkness of anxiety, the darkness of loneliness, the darkness of economic insecurity, the darkness of illness, sickness, or tragedy, the darkness of a broken heart, the darkness of insecurity or uncertainty, or, or even the darkness of rebellion and pride, the darkness of arrogance and hubris, wherever you may be, it is my prayer that you would be compelled by this Jesus once again to embrace the good news and be embraced by it so that new life, new creation, new creativity, a whole new order out of chaos can rise up in your life even while it is still dark. As we come to the time in our service for communion, as you grab whatever elements you may have for the sacrament, may you be reminded that this time in our service that is so meaningful for so many of us is a time that is centered around elements of darkness, of a broken body and of spilled blood. And what we do during this time each week is the retelling of the resurrection story, of our partaking of communion as a symbol of new life here and now out of the darkness of the death of Jesus. And today, we can take communion as an expression of this same hope, even while it is still dark. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.